Heavenly Father, I thank you. Your word is truth. Father, I thank you that you are good and you want to give us truth that we can live out, that we can shine with the radiance of Christ in us, that the world may know who we are as followers of Christ and that that that, uh, lifestyle that we live in Christ would not only honor you, but draw the lost to you and build the body of Christ up. So, Father, I pray, let us be a people of integrity. We walk what we talk. Tonight, God, as we talk theology, as we talk about the millennium, Father, I just pray, give us your perspective. And, and Lord, I, I realize this issue has been debated for centuries. And we are not going to come to a definitive conclusion tonight, though we will perhaps continue to hold to our opinions. But the bottom line, Lord, is we are so anxious for the return of Christ, whenever that may be. And we want so much to be ready and for this world to be ready. So God, prepare us and use us to that end, that the world might come to know Christ. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Well, tonight we are talking about the millennium. We're going to uh, walk through the, fir- the, the four views. I've got a, a chart up here. I am not a prophecy chart person. This really is a prophecy chart for each millennial view in sound bites and, and just very, just, or, or maybe sound bites is not the term I'm looking for, but it, it, it's a broad brush approach, okay? Um, you get a hold of some books and wow, they, they really go into detail and charts and such. Uh, that's never been me. I, I don't like that particular way of handling it, though I do have a view of revelation and such. But the, 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 the time charts, it, when we start putting times to it, when we start being so specific, that's where I run into an issue. Anyways, the millennium is a subject, a, theo- a theological subject that the church has been discussing almost since its inception. I, well, I would say it's been discussing it since its inception, uh, but it did not become a, an issue that people held different views on until that we are aware of until the second century. Papias wrote in around 140 AD, he referred to uh, a, a pre-millennial perspective. That's how I would characterize him. I, I, and I say that's how I would characterize him because his view became known as the Kiliest view. Uh, m- millennium means what? Mill means what in Latin? Thousand. Anybody? Thousand. <laughs> Kilius in Greek means thousand. Okay, so it's basically saying the same thing with a different word. Um, it was very, very basic. The dispensation, dispensational premillennial view, you need to know this, has only been around for about 150 years. It was not on the church's radar at all, at all, until the 1800s, about mid-1800s. Um, historic premillennialism was the millennial or premillennial view that was held and then people began to realize that there were some issues with it and I agree with them and so then they came up with more of a dispensational millennial premillennial view and and just as I'm beginning to divide the historic millennial view and the dispensational premillennial view let me just say this that I have this basic chart up here but the truth is that there are people who hold to the historic millennial view and they view this differently. Same with the dispensational millennial view. Uh, not so much the premillennial view. Those, those are basic views. Um, but within these premillennial views, people are all over the charts. And so it's kind of hard to peg them because many historic premillennialists also believe in a rapture. Um, but they, they don't believe in two judgments and uh, several resurrections. Okay, And actually, the dispensational premillennial view... They hold anywhere from four, I would say, four to seven judgments, okay? Um, Some of those judgments I I, I wouldn't call judgments per se. Uh, The main judgment that I need us to focus on is what's commonly called the day of judgment, okay? We'll come to that um, 
and and here here's another thing we may not get through this tonight okay um what we are trying to do is we are trying to put together this huge puzzle there are many scripture passages that people theologians bring into this subject most of them personally i believe have nothing to do with the millennium okay because i believe there is only one person in the entire bible that referred to a thousand years and that is the apostle john and that's why that's that's why we're going to go through what we're going to go through can i say as a pan mill I never approached the order of the day of the Lord, as you see that we're going to do today. I never approached the order of the day of the Lord like we're going to do today. When that happened, for me, when that happened, it clicked. And and my view began to shift rapidly at that point. Because I began to ask myself some really hard questions that I'm going to ask you. As far as where do we fit this thousand years? Um... Papias in 140 AD, he held to what's called the Kiliest view. Justin Martyr in 150, 175 AD, uh, he is, or 60, 165 AD, he held this, a similar view. Justin Martyr, however, tells us very clearly that the early, the church of his day did not all agree with him. That some held to a symbolic view and others held to a more literal view. Um, and then, the the symbolic view began to really give uh, or burgeon um, to in the next hundred or so years, and people such as uh, Saint Augustine and the like really promoted that. Um, the Catholic Church held to a modified amillennial view, um, but the the two main views, if we could boil the millennial views down to two main views, they would be this, a literal view and a symbolic or figurative view. I hold to a symbolic view. And by symbolic, I mean the thousand years in Revelation 20. It gives us a picture of the millennium that is symbolic. Uh, we're not going to hit that until next week or maybe the week after, just depending on how quickly we can get through the study tonight. The, um, the, the millennial dialogue that takes place is a very big one. I appreciate a number of books if you're interested in doing further study on this subject. The, uh, the ones that I have, I have enjoyed is when there is a general editor and he chooses four guys, one representing each one, to discuss why they hold to their particular view and then following their defense for their view, the other three give a short rebuttal. So the historic premillennialist will share, this is what I believe. And then the other three will say, uh, I really appreciate this brother and his, and his perspective. But here's why, as a fellow brother in the Lord, I disagree with him. And you will find that uh, these two right here, uh, when they do that, that they will tend to not want to overlap because there there's a there is a common thread between the historic and the dispensational premillennial view understand, and there is also a common thread between these two though they understand the millennium differently. Having said that, now let me just walk you through each of these views, and let's start with the historic premillennial view. All of them believe in a church age that we are in the church age right right now. It's the amillennial view that believes that. This presently is the millennium, okay? Since that's the last one, and that's the view that I hold to, I'm going to get to that one last, okay? So forgive me if this presentation is slanted, okay? It, it's purposely slanted um, so that I, I, want to, I want to goad you. I want to challenge you because the majority, I would venture to say it's fair to, it's fair to say that the majority of Christians today are premillennialists, somewhere between these two. And it's because of the Schofield notes. It's because that certain strains became very popularized. Because for me, the, the millennium is not a big deal. So why would I spend a lot of time preaching on it? But for the historic and dispensational premillennialists, it is a very big deal. And so they're going to spend a lot of time teaching on it. So what do you think is going to occupy the general populace's attention? And so you have movies out like... Um, left, behind. left Behind, 
books, movies, and it's in the public public's view, and they watch it, and yeah, I mean, I guess that's the way it's going to happen. So uh, that has more to do, those books have more to do with the, you know, the church age up to the, the resurrection, okay, rather than including the millennium. But it certainly gets you curious, and so you start looking, well, what is Tim LaHaye, and is the other guy's name Jenkins? Um, what do these guys believe? What do these other people believe? And, and before you know it, there's a lot of people Googling pre, the premillennial view. Okay? Um, <clears throat> the historic premillennialists believe we are in the church age, that there is a parousia. Can someone explain to me what the parousia is? That is a theological term. It's actually a Greek term that's used very commonly in our day. And I want to use it uh, rather than just talk about Christ's return. Okay? Uh, the parousia, does anyone know what that means? Okay, good. It means coming. It's the Greek term, Greek word for coming or appearing. So this is the coming or appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is his second return, okay? Um, I, I want to I be careful with the re- just calling it the return of the Lord because within the dispensational premillennial view, they believe that there is a seven-year tribulation that follows the rapture, but precedes the parousia, or Christ's second coming, okay? Um, At the parousia, man of lawlessness is destroyed, and the resurrection, according to the historic premillennial view, the resurrection of the righteous takes place. Not the resurrection of the wicked. That happens a thousand years later, after the millennium. The millennium... Some historic premillennialists say it's a literal thousand years. Some say it's a symbolic thousand years. Most of them lean towards a literal thousand years, but there are still many who believe it's, it's symbolic. So you have the church age, the parousia, the resurrection of the righteous, a, a millennial age, thousand years, or what have you. Then at the end of that thousand years, when Satan is... is thrown into hell at the end of the millennium. There's a great war, and because Satan is released, and I should have put this up here for these these uh, millennial views, but within the millennium, we're going to get to this, Satan is bound. At the end of the thousand years, he's released. And so consequently, he gathers the nations. They come against Jerusalem, according to the premillennial view here, and fire of God falls down. However, it actually happens, I mean, Specifically, in detail, how it happens generally is fire falls from heaven, Satan's destroyed, he's cast into hell, and now we have the resurrection of the wicked followed by the judgment of everyone. Okay? Now, as we go through the order of the day of the Lord, I think you're going to see some serious issues arise with the historic premillennial view. It doesn't seem to fit numerous passages that we're going to look at in the New Testament. Okay. Premillennialists were aware of this. To solve this problem, you have the dispensational premillennial view. And what they did then, excuse me for using this concept, but it, they did patchwork. And, and so I don't mean that to sound negative, but they realized the issues, so they patched up the premillennial view. And they, they said, okay, it seems very clear, according to scriptures that we're going to look at, when Jesus returns, there's a judgment. That doesn't happen in the premillennial or historic premillennial view. And so they say there is a judgment. Actually, there's a judgment before the millennium and a judgment after the millennium. So the dispensational premillennial view talks about a church age, just like all of them. There is a rapture seven years before the parousia, between which is seven years of tribulation. The Antichrist rises, or the man of lawlessness, or the beast uh, rises, uh, rules the world, generally speaking, rules the world. And then when Christ comes back, he destroys him. Um, They're divided here. Some would say only the righteous are raised. And so they agree with the historic premillennial view. Others say, no, everyone is raised at this point. Then everyone is judged. We call that the judgment of the nations, Matthew 25, that we're going to look at. Then you have the thousand, literal thousand-year millennium. Then at the end of it, you have a resurrection of everybody living in in the millennial kingdom, and then all of them are judged, and then you have the new heaven and the new earth. Okay? In the post-millennial view, 
They believe that the millennium happens in the church age, but it happens gradually. It's not a literal thousand years. It would be a golden age in which, for the most part, the world is Christianized. I don't know of a post-millennial that would say that the entire world is Christianized. The vast majority becomes Christianized. I happen to agree with that particular statement. I believe there's numerous scriptures that speak of this, um, but I just don't believe that this then binds Satan. It doesn't seem to fit. After this golden age in which the world gradually becomes Christianized to the point where right when Christ comes back, Christ comes back to a Christianized world, for the most part, you understand what I mean by Christianized? Not everyone is saved, just the vast majority. Um, Christ comes back, the resurrection of the righteous and the wicked, the judgment, new heavens and new earth. I hold to a very similar view. It's just that I don't believe that the millennium is that golden age. I do believe that there is a millennium. I believe that the only place in Scripture that teaches it is Revelation 20, and that Christ then comes back. Everyone is resurrected. Everyone is judged, and there's a new heaven and new earth. Okay? A very simple prophecy charter, whatever you want to call it. Um, And so what I want to do right now is go into these scripture passages and go through the New Testament and I'm going to hit key passages of scripture and we are going to need to ask this question that you find under letter G, where might a 1,000 year reign of Christ on the earth after his return, but before the judgment, after his return, but before the judgment, fit into these scripture passages? Where do they fit? So, before I do that, though, I want to ask, are there, th- this, is, this is a lot. If you're not familiar with these four millennial views, it, your mind is probably swimming right now. Yeah, and I get that. I understand that, okay? Um, the more you read on it, though, the more you're, you become familiar with it and such. And, and so, my question now is, do you understand this view? And again, within the premillennial views, I'm not trying to hard peg them, uh, especially in the dispensational premillennial view. There's some variations uh, in that view, but the historic premillennial view, for the most part, this is what they believe. Um, there's more disc- there's more leeway, if you will, within the dispensational premillennial view. So, any questions with regard to this, or or Cole, you're you're a premillennialist, and I don't know what you probably fall more into this one. Um, anything that you would, from your perspective, you would tweak in this? Well, hard to see because all I see is a glare. Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, yeah, that's right. Um, yes, rapture. What's underneath? What arrow for rapture? Uh, rapture of the righteous. Okay. Then the seven-year tribulation. Then okay. Jesus' return is parousia. The resurrection of all. Uh-huh. Resur- the judgment of all. A thousand-year millennium. The resurrection of everyone that was in the millennium, the judgment of everyone that was in the millennium, and then the new heavens and new earth. Right. Yeah, that's looks like it says it. Okay. Yeah. All right. Um, and again, I am going to ask. Please forgive me if, in my going through scripture verses, my I truly do not want to come across as if I look down on any of these views. Because the literal view and the symbolic view um, have been around since the early church. Okay, Godly men, godly women have held different perspectives. Justin Martyr, probably one of, one of the most prolific writers of the early church, was a Kiliast, a premillennialist. And I disagree with him. Okay, So I, I do want to be careful how I address this. I want to address it with humility. Um, but you know me, I do tend to get a little passionate, and but I don't mean to overstep my bounds. So please, uh, I am just asking, forgive me for how I might speak right up front. Um, but before I jump, uh, okay, question, answer, Could you just comment? Briefly the post-millennial view believes that there is a church age from the uh, 
Pentecost, if you will, <clears throat> up until Jesus comes back. Towards the end of the church age, the world will begin to get more and more Christianized. It will become, it will get, it will lean more and more towards a golden age in which the knowledge of the Lord <clears throat> will, will fill the earth even as the waters uh, fill the seas. Um, passages such as this, that Christ's rule, um, the Messiah's rule will be from the great, how does it say, to the, from the great sea to the ends of the earth. Um, that, um, what would be some other, anyways, that, that the world become Christianized. That does not happen right away. Uh, they would say that it's not happening right now, though they would say there are rumblings. Um, this particular view began to fall off after World War II. Uh, they began to see just how wicked the world was, and people began to question the post-millennial view. Uh, Jonathan Edwards was a post-millennial. Um, Calvin, Luther, uh, it's too hard to tell. Post-millennialists claim them for their camp. Amillennialists claim them for their camp. And so there's a debate about that. And personally, I don't enter into it. They just believed in a symbolic view. That's all I care about. All right? Stephen? Yeah. Um, you know, I'm a post-millennial... If I'm understanding what you're saying, I mean, you can look back over past millennium, you can see the growth of the church, and, and there has been a majority of the nation that Christianity will preach. Not yes. everyone has accepted it. Okay. And it looks like now we're kind of on the decline. And um, I don't know about the decline. I would say that Christianity is growing more today than it ever has been. We're also experiencing more persecutions in our day than we ever have been, even in the early church. Um, so I'm not convinced that Christianity is on the decline by any means. Um, so I personally am a positive amillennialist because I do believe in a great revival before the coming of the Lord, and many amillennialists do not believe that. Yes, comment, question? Kind of both. Okay, so in my study, and like, correct me if I'm wrong, but like the post millennialists, like in Amelis, they both are figurative as far as time goes, but the post mill is more like, I don't think doing good works is the right thing to say, but it's like they need to get into every, like, it's like that the government and media and all these, like, uh, thing it's not just the church that advances, you know, like the truth of God. It's other institutions as well. Right, because the yeast leavens the whole lump. The idea is that if, if I'm going to get saved, it's going to impact my business. If I'm president of the United States, it's going to impact how I lead the nation. So I think that's fair, that if the world's going to become more and more Christianized, it's going to impact all the institutions in the world. Correct? Yeah. So... Um, all right, here is why I want us to look at this, okay? <clears throat> Especially within the dispensational premillennial view, there is this tendency to look at passages, turn with me if you would, to Isaiah chapter 11. It's talking about the branch from Jesse. And we need to ask the question, and I've done this in sermons, so I'm, I'm, I'm going to cut to the chase with it tonight. But we need to ask the question, when is this going to happen? Because especially when you get to verse 6, it says, the, the wolf will live with the lamb, the leopard will lie down with the goat, the calf and the lion and the yearling together, and a little child will lead them. The cow will feed with the bear, their young will lie down together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox. The infant will play near the hole of the cobra, and the young child put his hand into the viper's nest. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain, for the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. The verse that I just quoted from. The question is, is that, that, well, let me just say this, the dispensational premillennial view and uh, many historic premillennialists would say that this happens during the millennium. 
that even though the curse is not lifted, that there's still sin and death on the earth during the millennium, that some aspects of the curse are lifted. People will tend to live longer. Isaiah 65, that, that uses a similar wording that I just read to you in that very same passage in Isaiah 65. It does, um, and, and, I lost my train of thought, excuse me. Um, that in the millennium, that there is sin and death, but that not only do people tend to live longer, but the carnivores are no longer carnivores. Okay? Okay, kind of, but it's not. And that is extremely important for us to look at. And we will, um, yeah, we're probably not going to get to that passage today. But we're going to need to look at passages like Matthew 19 that talk about the regenesis and when it, when that is. So the, the premillennial view kind of views the millennium. There is a change in nature, but only a partial change. Um, the question though is, it seems clear that from verses one through five, that there is a strong leaning or bent towards this speaking of Jesus' earthly ministry. What we do know for sure is that at verse 10, in that day, what follows is a verse quoted in Romans 15 that Paul clearly states is the church age, Gentiles coming to Christ. And he quotes it to support the, the view that the Gentiles would respond to the gospel, okay? So Paul intends that intends verse 10 here to refer to the church age. And my question then is, if the, if the first five verses refer to the church age and verses 10 and 11 at least refer to the church age, and I believe the entire chapter does, but doesn't it seem odd that he speaks of the church age, then switches to the millennial age, and then back to the church age, okay? And so the response to that is, well, prophecy does that. And I would say, I'm not sure I agree with that. It, so, I believe the whole chapter refers to the millennium. The premillennial view would be lean more towards saying, no, these verses at least, at least from 6 through 9, refer to the millennium. So here's then what's at stake. Depending on our millennial view, we will interpret those verses differently. I believe they happen in the church age, and so I do believe that the knowledge of the, 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 the knowledge of, for the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. That will happen in this age, not in the age to come. And, and when I say the age to come, forgive me, I do believe there are two ages, that there is the present age and then that there is the age to come. And so the millennium is kind of this, excuse me for saying it this way, it's kind of an awkward age and some premillennialists say that it belongs to the this age, and some say it belongs to the next age. Because it's it's kind of a change, and it's kind of not. Some things in nature change, some things are not. And so, the for me, the value of studying the millennium is, when I look at a passage like this, since I don't believe there's a thousand years between the return of Christ and the judgment, then which age does this fit in? Verse 9, which age does it fit in? And I would say he is referring here not to heaven. Paul makes it clear that the context is the church age. So that's, I do believe that there is going to be a revival, a worldwide revival. And there's, there's many other verses that we could look at. Um, those verses, the premillennialists take and say, no, those verses apply to the millennium, that there's going to be a revival in the millennium, if you will. Steve. Sorry, you're, you're hitting on something that I have a lot of questions on. It, wouldn't it be possible if uh, the millennium itself did not fit in the church age and did not fit into the age that is to come, but was actually like uh, a fulcrum point where it's right there in the middle and it's a transition point? Okay. If the church age is only going to be a little over 2,000 years and Christ comes back really soon, 
You have the church age at 2,000 years, the millennium at 1,000 years, and the age to come as forever. That's more than a fulcrum. Okay, that, that's, a, that's half of the church age. Okay, so you, you see what I'm saying. Um, if Christ were referred to not only in this age, but the age to come, or Paul in Ephesians 1, this age and the age to come, the authors of Scripture refer to two ages. They don't refer to a fulcrum. They don't refer to a third age. They refer to this age and the age to come. And so we have to deal with, then where did the millennium fall in? And again, that's why I say most of them either take the millennium as part of this age or they take it as part of the age to come. All right? Let's do this now. Let's go ahead. Let's look at John 5. Let's get into the thick of this. And in my hurriedness to go through these passages, by all means, slow me down. Um, can I just say, I, I, for me, there's a number of passages, both in Old Testament and New Testament, that are at stake with which view that we hold to. For example, not just Isaiah 11 and Isaiah 65, but also passages like the parable of the talents, the parable of, not the parable of, excuse me, um, the teaching of Jesus separating the nations and judging the nations. Um, that that kingdom that they go into, the dispensational premillennials would say is the millennial age. It's not the new heavens and new earth. Okay? So that passage is at stake as well. I think when, for me, and this is all I can speak to, is my reference point. When I moved into an amillennial view, what happened to me was a very simple outline of church history. As I went through methodically the passages of scripture, they fit very cleanly. That's a sign of a good theory. When you go into science and you test theories, the best theory, not necessarily the right one, but the best theory is generally the one that needs the fewest caveats, the fewest explanations, the fewest, well, okay, if you're going to hold to the flood, then what about this and what about this, okay? Um, and so I, I, I personally believe that the amillennial view has the fewest of those. And when I when I started viewing the scriptures from that perspective, for me, things fell into place very cleanly, neatly. I understood it. And it for me, it was an aha moment. It truly was. Um, and yes, I did see a revival that comes at the end of the age, not during the millennium. Okay. So I did say we're going to get on with this. Matthew, excuse me, John chapter 5. And we will read that passage just as soon as I get there myself. Okay. Jesus says in verse 28, John 5, 28, Do not be amazed at this, for a time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good will rise to live, and those who have done evil will rise to be condemned. Now, from a premillennial view, they see two resurrections here, not one. They support the view of two resurrections in Revelation 20, where it talks about the first resurrection, though it does not speak of a second resurrection. Okay, So they would say, even though the second resurrection is not mentioned, that goes without mention because it's obvious it's the resurrection of the wicked. They would say that in this verse, between uh, those who have done good will rise to live, and those who have done evil will rise to be condemned, that those are two resurrections, and there's a thousand years between them. That is the typical historic premillennial view, okay? Um, the dispensational view came to the rescue, it believed, when it said, well, wait a second, no, this is actually, at the end, it, when Jesus comes back, there's a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked, and, but there's also going to be another one at the end of the millennium. The problem, though, that I have with this is other scripture verses that speak of the return of Christ and judgment. Now, yeah, let, 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 okay, let me move on, because the, the dispensationals have a, a, an explanation for this, okay? All right, so I think what we, let's just, in observing this text, we need to realize that it says that there is a time. 
It doesn't say that there are two times coming. There's one time. There is a time that's coming. Now, if there are two resurrections, Jesus needed to have said that there are two times coming. But he said there is a time coming. The historic premillennialist says, granted, but just understand that, and this is, this is a common phrase that's going to refer to, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like a day to the Lord. I don't believe that has anything to do with millennium, but that is, uh, from their perspective, that's how they respond to this. That even though it is called a time, that time lasts a thousand years. And at the beginning there's a resurrection, and at the end there's a resurrection. Well, there is a time coming to me says that that time is one time. There's no separation of a thousand years of a righteous reign of Christ on the earth. If I'm going to refer to two incidences that are separated by a thousand years, I would say that there are two times coming. I think most people would understand that. So I, I don't, I believe that that explanation is, is weak. It doesn't carry a lot of weight. Okay, that the time he's referring to lasts a thousand years. Um, that, that doesn't satisfy me when I'm, when I'm studying this and trying to be an honest student of God's word. Okay, so a time is coming when all, not one group, but all who are in their graves will hear his voice and come out. That's going to happen at one time, and it's going to happen to all. From, a, from an amillennial perspective, that's absolutely right. When he comes back and we hear his voice, all will be raised from the dead, the just and the unjust. And all will be judged immediately after that, what's commonly called the great white throne judgment. Um, so I, I, I read this verse and I don't feel that it's fair to say that there are two resurrections. I don't feel that it's fair to say um, that there is one resurrection in which the righteous are raised and another resurrection a thousand years later. That the um, that the wicked are raised. Okay. Um, again, as I go, question, comment, please. Stephen, could you do me a favor? Could you get me a glass of water? I'm really dry mouth tonight. Okay, um, that is a rebuttal that's given. Um, the, the problem I have with that, and we're going to see this later when we get into 2 Peter 3, that's called the Day of the Lord. And according to the premillennial view, the Day of the Lord lasts at least a thousand years. And their explanation is in the context, it tells us right there that a thousand years is like a day and a day like a thousand years. I'd have to switch around. But... Okay, so I, I, I don't believe that Peter is trying to tell us that the day of the Lord is going to last a thousand years. And so therefore, this thousand years, God is calling a day. I don't believe that's his point. His point is that this time is going to happen very quickly. So when God says, I'm coming soon, for us it might seem like a long time, but for the Lord it truly is soon. That's his point. And that's his point from verse 3 through the rest of the chapter. And so that's why he say it, says a thousand years like a day, a day like a thousand years. Awesome thing. What verse are you in? You're at 24? Yeah. Okay. I'm not sure. Right now I'm referring to 2 Peter chapter 3. Yeah, John in John 5, I was looking at verses 28 and 29. Yeah. Uh, 24 does yeah. talk similarly. It's, it's um, yeah. Because it says, and the day, a time is coming and has now come. Right. And so you have a, a spiritual death that he's talking about there, and then a physical death that he's referring to later in the same context, even though he just refers to both of them as death. Okay. Um, let, let's move on. Um, John six forty. just turn the page there. Well, for me, it's two pages. <clears throat> and in, in 640, 
He says, For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. If the resurrection of the righteous happens on the last day, how do you fit a thousand years after that? On earth, where the curse is still very rampant on the earth, there are some minor changes, but how can you refer to that then as the last day? It doesn't say the last day before I come. The last day is in con- in. in I would, this would take time to prove, but it would be the last day of this age. And that's what he's getting at. That's what the phrase, the, the last day, refers to. The last days, plural, means the last days of this age. Okay? So that then the next age would be a very different age. And in my perspective, new heavens, new earth. Okay? Now, let's move to Matthew 25. Uh, we're going to see some things begin to f- really fall into place here, I believe. Um, and when I myself, holding to a pan mill view, I sat down with verse, this verse and obviously numerous others, and I had to challenge myself. Because for the most part, even though I call myself a pan mill, for the most part, I was a premillennialist. Just not entirely. And so when I came to this passage... I had to reconcile whatever millennial view I had, I had to reconcile it with this. And there's about a dozen verses, and I have cherry-picked probably six to eight here for us to look at. We're not going to look at all of them. Oh, goodness, we have like ten minutes left. Um, But we need to, to, as I went through these verses, I began to realize I am not able to... When you use a term here, forgive me if it's offensive. I don't mean it to be offensive, but it fits what I'm trying to say. I became weary of shoehorning a thousand-year millennium into these verses. I, and I just had to step back and say, I really feel as if I'm not being honest with these verses. Now, this is the, this is the third one that we're going to look at. The first two, uh, the first one, John 5, I believe is, 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 Fairly solid, has a lot to say. Maybe not John 6. It talks about the last day. You can kind of fudge what is the last day. Is it? But when we get to this passage, we have some serious questions we need to ask ourselves. So let's, let's begin. Number one, let me just say this. This should not be ever referred to as the parable of the sheep and goats because this is not a parable. Okay, this is a teaching. Uh, because he refers to the sheep and the goats, he does so. He doesn't say the kingdom of God is like. The typical phrase introducing a parable. He says that the Son of Man separates the nations as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. We know also that it's not a parable because verse 20, verse 34 does not say, then the shepherd said to those on his right. It says, then the king. So he uses the sheep, the goats, the parable, the shepherd, the sheep, the goats, and the shepherd metaphors uh, as similes, as. The Son of Man separates the nations as. Okay, so it's simply a simile. So this is a teaching, it's not a parable. We need to realize he's not going to use parabolic or symbolic language in this. He's going to speak straightforward. Uh, he's not going to use uh, symbolisms as he would in, or what I call parabolic language, as he would in normal parables. It's just straightforward teaching. And he says this, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his throne in heavenly glory. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. Skipping down, verse 41, then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. We could spend an hour on this passage, just on those verses that I read. Um, and I'm tempted to. I, it, it's 
for me, when it comes to something like this, I, I feel as if we're putting a puzzle together. And I love puzzles because I love to make sure that they fit. Because when you're done, <coughs> most puzzles anyway look beautiful and awesome. Okay, and I love that. And I just want to lay it out there for a couple of weeks. Some people glue it together and frame it, and you know, beautiful. And but it took hours and hours to put this puzzle together, assuming it's not one of those ten-piece puzzles. Though for me, maybe it can still take a long time. Anyways, the the, the truth is, I, I love puzzles, and, and I love to see when a puzzle comes together. Okay, so I'm tempted to just spend hours on this passage, but we can't. I read the NIV, and, and the NIV does a very poor job of translating this. When you really want to get into a passage, you need to be more literal. And I'm going to uh, read it a little bit more literally. And I want you to insert words or put parentheses around words. Uh, ins- how can I say? Insert words that are in the Greek that I'm going to read to you. And then put parentheses around words that are not in the Greek. Okay? When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then, the Greek word is tate, then, verse 20, uh, 31. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his throne, then he will sit on his throne in glory. Heavenly is supplied. Put that in parentheses. And all the nations will be gathered before him. And he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will put the sheep on the right and the goats on the left. Here's the significance of this. When Will Jesus sit on his throne in glory? When will will he do this? According to the context. When will Jesus sit on his throne in glory? Exactly. Okay. That's the significance of when and then. That's why I wanted to bring to your attention then. Um, Some Greek words then simply mean that at some point after this, this happened. That's not the case with tate. Tate usually connotes immediately afterwards, though not always. Though not always. Here, we know it does because he says when, then. When the Son of Man comes, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Do you see the chronological mm-hmm. connection here? Okay, so we cannot insert a thousand years between when and then. Okay? They happen when he comes, then he sits on his glorious throne. I emphasize the word and because the words, there it, it, it is used three times and they are all in connection with then. When the Son of Man comes, then he sits on his glorious throne and all nations are gathered to him, and he separates the nations, and he puts the sheep on his right and his left. Okay? So all of these ands, these clauses that follow then, happen then. It's a, to me, that says you're really straining to insert somewhere in here a thousand years. I am speaking more to the historic premillennialist at this point. The dispensational premillennialists, at least most of them, have an answer for this. But for the historic premillennialists, such as Pius, Justin Martyr, all of the the Christians that were premillennialists up until mid-1800s when dispensationalism began to become popularized... Um, I, I see a problem with that view because I'm not sure it's genuine for me to try and insert a thousand years here. I do find it curious that there is no mention 
in any of Jesus' parables. And again, I'm speaking to the historic premillennialists, not to the dispensational premillennialists, but I find it very curious that Jesus himself never teaches about the millennium. He never teaches about the millennium in his parables. I, I think, in, in fairness, as we go through the letters, that none of the authors in the New Testament until John speaks about a millennium. Now, the pre the dispensationalists will say, yes, he does. And in fact, the parable that precedes this, the talents, they are not ushered into heaven, they are ushered into the millennial kingdom. That this parable itself, their response is, you're right, we don't need to insert a thousand years because the thousand years doesn't come until after this parable. Um, and again, I struggle with the use of the term parable. Regardless, they say the judgment of the nations is this judgment right here, and that those who, inasmuch as you've done it unto the least of these, my brothers, you've done it unto me, those people go into the millennium. Um, I'm not sure how significant it is, but let's, let's just realize that my brother's when, he's, when Jesus refers to my brothers, he is not referring to his fellow Jews. Uh, in the book of Matthew, it emphasizes the idea of, gen, of nations coming to Christ. Um, he has nations in view here to kind of kick the backsides of Jews. You're not, God's chosen, the churches. Um, he... He, he includes Jesus saying when he says, who are my brothers and sisters? They're, who's my mother? Who's my brother? Who's my sister? They are the ones who do the will of my father. It doesn't say they are the Jews who do the will. Of, they are those who do the will. I am one of those that Jesus is referring to. The least of these, my brothers. I am one of Jesus' brothers. Okay? So he's not referring to the Jews here. He's referring to those who would believe in him. Gentiles and Jews. Um... And so, as I read through this passage, I find it very difficult and, and honestly unfair to try and put in a thousand years. So I want, I want to look at the uh, dispensational view that this is the judgment of nations. Um, here's the problem just by calling it the judgment of nations. It is a judgment of nations, but let's understand Matthew uses the concept of nations not to refer to all of these entity groups, but to refer to the individuals of nations. Okay? The typical dispensational view of this judgment right here, the judgment of the nations, is that if a nation, an entire nation, treated the Jewish nation righteously, they got to enter into the millennium. I have a serious problem with that. I... I this is the only passage in Scripture that would teach that. It, it fits very awkwardly. Um, I, I don't feel that it, it's a fair assessment of what Jesus is teaching here. When Jesus refers to go and make disciples of all nations, or go make nations disciples, literally translated, he is referring to individuals of nations. Does he have nations in view? Yes, he does here. But he has individuals in view. It is individuals that become disciples, not nations. But Jesus has nations in view because he says, I want you to reach the entire nation. That's why he uses the idea of nations. Don't just stop at winning some. I want you to preach the gospel to all nations, throughout nations, and make it your goal to win all of those in the nations. Okay? That's the heart of Jesus. And so when he's referring to nations here, he is not judging a nation as a whole but he is judging the people of all the nations, okay? It's the people of all the nations that we judge. There is never in Scripture taught that if you're part of a righteous nation, you will, be, you will experience blessing like this. He, he, he refers to my inheritance, the inheritance of the kingdom prepared for you since the creation. That can be given to an unbeliever just because he's a part of a nation that was righteous, that is, that treated the Jewish nation righteously, that, that flies in the face of Scripture, and, and it honestly scares me to, to think that people would believe that. But that's the general interpretation of that. Now, again, 
let me be fair, not all dispensational premillennialists believe that, but the reason why they believe that is because they believe that this is a judgment that precedes the millennium. So here's the question. Is this kingdom that he's referred to, that's been prepared for this since the creation of the world, is that the millennium? Just a few things you can write down. Forgive me, I am going to go through this quickly. It says that the unrighteous go into eternal fire. I would venture to say that this parable makes it clear, excuse me, this teaching makes it clear that the historic premillennial view cannot be accurate because there is, all of these are being judged at the same time. So it must be this judgment. And it seems as if Jesus comes back, though the resurrection is not mentioned, now they are all standing before him. There's no thousand years mentioned. And apparently there's been a resurrection of the righteous uh, well before that that's not mentioned. And now apparently there is a sudden resurrection of the wicked, but all are being judged. It, 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 it just lends to a very awkward feel as we try to, to make this fit a particular view. Okay, it's specifically the, pre, the, the historic premillennial view. Um, so this eternal fire, it says, is prepared for the devil and his angels. Hades, scripture does not teach, Hades was not prepared for the devil and his angels. Hell was. Hell is where Hades and death are thrown into at the end of the age, at the great white throne judgment. As we go through Hades and hell in the weeks to come, we're going to see that, um, that people are not cast into hell until the great white throne judgment. They are cast into Hades. Then those who are in Hades and their bodies that are in the grave, those are cast into hell. The second death, the lake of fire. And not before. Okay? And so this eternal fire that's been pre- that is reserved for the devil and his angels is hell, and therefore must refer to this judgment, cannot refer to this judgment. Because people who are judged here who are wicked would be cast into Hades, not hell. Some would say, well, that's a minor point. I don't think so, because now we have to play around with this concept of Hades and hell and rework that, but be it as it may. The second thing is that um, without studying Revelation 20, this is a bit unfair, but I'm going to say this, that it says concerning... Um, the first resurrection that they come to life and after the thousand years, the rest of the dead come to life. That is the resurrection of the wicked. Resurrection of the righteous is the first resurrection, resurrection of the, the, the rest of the, um, the rest of the dead come to life happens after the millennium. But according to this passage, that doesn't fit, even with the pre-dispensational, premillennial view. Um, there are multiple resurrections of both the righteous and the wicked, and it, it, right here, there is, there is just one. The third thing is the day of judgment means that there is one time of judgment, not two. If, and we're going to see this in uh, 2 Peter 3 next week, but if there are two judgments, there must be two days of the Lord. Okay? They take the day of the Lord as a concept that happens many times in church history. But when we see in the New Testament the day of the Lord being... I get that with the Old Testament. The day of the Lord is just when God judges a nation. And you can see that. But it, ha- it reflects to a future day. Here, the, in the New Testament, the day of the Lord, and you're just going to have to do a word study or a phrase study in the day of the Lord. It refers to the end of the age and its judgments. In the dispensational view, there are two judgments. The way they get around this is as they did with a time is coming that the day of the Lord lasts a thousand years. If the day of the Lord lasts a thousand years, 
and the day of the Lord consists of judgment, such as the day of judgment, okay, then we would have to say that the millennium must be characterized by judgment. Here's what I'm saying. If this from here to here is called the day of the Lord and also called the day of judgment, I have to therefore say that all of this thousand years is characterized by that phrase, the day of judgment. To do that, I am now calling the thousand-year millennium judgment. And I don't know of any dispensational millennials that would say that. But I think it's only fair to conclude that's what you're saying if this whole thousand years that starts with the judgment and ends with the judgment, as the day of judgment, you're calling the millennium a day of judgment. And it's supposed to be an age of bliss, a golden age, in which the reign of Christ is from sea to sea. That's not judgment. Um, they would say that Christ rules with an iron fist and there's judgment there, but that 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 is a very small percentage of what happens. For the most part, Christ is ruling a world that is following him, not that is rebelling against him. I think it's unfair to look at the premillennialists' millennium as they describe it and say that that is part of the day of judgment. I, I, I don't think that's fair. So if there is a day of judgment, then we can't have two. There must be one. All right. Um, the fourth thing is... Okay, the, the number four is using the term the day of the Lord, and that's um, I don't want to repeat myself. So num make number four then. Um, the inheritance of the blessed that's mentioned there in verse 34 cannot include an earth still under the curse with sin and death reigning. Is this what God has prepared for us since creation? Do you follow what I'm saying there? Verse 34, Come you who are blessed by my Father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. If that is the millennium, that is still under the, the earth is still under the curse, it's only slightly lifted, because apparently there are no carnivores, um, and people live longer, but there's still sin, there's still death, is this truly the inheritance for the blessed that the earth is still under the curse with sin and death reigning? Is this what God has prepared for us as our, as it, it's like, this is my gift to you. An earth filled with sin and death still a curse that has not been lifted. And, and, and I, I would have to argue this, this inheritance cannot be a sin-death-filled earth. It must be the new heaven and new earth. And it cannot be the millennium. If it's not the millennium, then we go back and we have to ask that hard question, then where do you fit a thousand years in verses 31 <laughs> through 33? When the sun comes, then he will sit on his glorious throne and he will bring the nations before him. And he will separate them as a sheep separate, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. It's a continuous flow <clears throat> that the, this idea of the, when, then, and, 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 I don't think it's fair to interrupt and insert a thousand years. Okay? So it seems only fair that when Jesus comes back and he sits on his glorious throne, he will have everyone come before him, they are resurrected, and he judges them. All nations gather before him, and they are individually judged. They're not judged as entire nations, they are judged individually. But all nations are brought before him. Those who have been righteous and have lived for Jesus enter into this phenomenal <laughs> kingdom, this new heaven and new earth that he's prepared since the creation of the world. And those who have rejected Christ and in essence live their lives as rebels against him, they will spend eternity, not in Hades, but in hell. Okay? Uh, question, and I need to close. So nations is, like, 
Would it be Greek word ethnos? Yes. Except it's plural, ethnoi. But yes, or people groups. So then in that case, those who are in Christ, would they be considered separate ethnos? Don't don't view okay. He's he's not judging individual. He's not judging them as groups. Right. He Matthew and and just do this. Go through how Matthew uses the word nations, because he is a Jew writing to Jews, but he needs them to see it's the nations that we're called to reach. Okay. He's the only one who says that Jesus told them and included in his gospel that Jesus told them, go and make disciples of all nations. Okay. Why? Because Jews tended not to think that way. Jews reach Jews. The ethnos, the Gentiles, uh, the goyim, they are unclean. And I, okay, God had something to say to Peter about that in, in, in Acts 10. So that is his point. And so it's not groups that he's judging. He is simply saying the nations are gathered to him and the individuals are separated, the righteous and the unrighteous. Not the righteous nations and the unrighteous. There's nowhere in scripture that supports nations being judged like this. Okay? Because that would mean, wow, if, if I just become part of a righteous nation that treats Jews or maybe Christians fairly, I'll go to heaven or I'll get to spend, uh, I'll, I'll get to go to the millennium. We're never told that you are blessed because you're part of a nation like that. Okay? You are blessed because you choose to follow Jesus. Let me close in prayer. Father, I, I thank you for your word. Um, I believe that your word wants to speak to our hearts today and challenge us that we must be prepared. You have something prepared for those who follow you, so I want my heart prepared for that. And so, Lord Jesus, I, I just pray when you come, may everyone in this room, and everyone listening to this online, may they be able to say, yes, I have followed Jesus. And he is my Lord and my Savior. He's my king. And when he comes, he will not come as my judge, but as my rescuer, my Savior, my Redeemer. And he will say to me, enter into my inheritance I've prepared for you since the creation of the world. God, let that be our heart. Prepare us in Jesus' name. Thank mm-hmm. you.